Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Weekender Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at nreionline.com. Let's jump right into this week's top news, features, and blog posts. Hello, and welcome to the NREI Weekender with your host, David Bodemer. How are you, David? I am doing all right. How are you this week? Doing fantastic. I'm, uh, I got some notes in front of me you were kind enough to send me, and it looks like we got about four or five stories somewhere around there to go through. Yep. Uh, I'm going to yeah highlight another four pieces uh, for the week. I think this is um, an interesting week, too, since we do have the some of those macroeconomic backdrop of you know the Fed recently having uh, lowered rates and mm-hmm. now the um, yield curve inverted. So that's been a, a nightmare for trading as we've seen this week. So I guess it's I, so I think that's like sort of an interesting backdrop then for like, all right, you know, our industry tends to be a bit of a laggard when it comes to things happening in the in the broader economy. So I think that's where a lot of so where we're situated with this stuff this week is, I think, you know, in the also in the face of, of what's going on in, in, in the bigger economic news. Mm, all right. Where are we starting? So um, yeah, with that in mind, like you know, because this this first one is is a very is very good news. So that's you know, so it, it is about it's it's based on a report from CBRE where the office U.S. office market has reached its lowest the the office vacancy rate is at its lowest point now in eighteen years, wow. uh, according to their numbers in the second quarter seventeen point. One million square feet got absorbed, uh, bringing the year-to-date total to uh, almost 67 million square feet, and that dropped the national vacancy rate to 12.2 percent. Wow! I mean, so that's good. Means there's a lot more businesses. Yeah, and I think I I actually found it really interesting that we're reaching that level um, because of some of the trends that we've talked about in the past around co-working and Mm -hmm. around uh, tenant office tenants actually, you know, in some cases reducing the amount of space that they're um, leasing. So even when, and, 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 you know, with that also there's been the rise in, you know, a lot of people, a lot more people work from home um, or work from the, from co-working spaces. So even given those pressures on the market, on the office market, the fact that the office vacancy rate is this good actually speaks to how strong demand actually has been for, from from office tenants. So I think it's actually particularly remarkable because it's been fueled, you know, by by the the, the economic cycle we've had, um, but it's also cutting against some things that that actually you would think would be dr- put, putting some pressure on on to drive vacancies upward. Gotcha. Now, does the report itself talk about um, who is trending as far as who has the lowest percentage, who has the highest percentage, what what areas of the country are doing really well compared to others? It's it's yeah. It does break down. Um, if you go to their original report, it goes through all the markets. But the ones that we point out that have the lowest vacancy right now include a lot of these tech markets like San Francisco, which is at four point eight percent, San Jose at five point nine percent, Oakland. At seven point eight percent, and then in in on the other side of the country, Charlotte, North Carolina, is at six percent. So yeah, there are some markets, particular, and I think they're where the story is partially driven by um, tech, which is one of the which I think is showing the strongest demand for office space. So the markets that are have a high concentration of tech 
companies are are not coincidentally the ones that are performing the best right now. Mm-hmm. And in our last podcast or the last stories from last week, I remember you you talked a little bit about one a few of the companies that were struggling because of increasing rents and and cost to do business. Is this trend of these offices filling up does that affect the the rent or lease rates that are going on in these different cities? Yeah, you know, definitely when you have um lower vacancy rates then that's going to help drive rents up. So uh, overall asking rates rose 5.1% uh, uh from a year ago wow. to 34. Uh, $34.28 per square foot. So that yeah, in general office, you know, low low vacancy rates help drive uh rising rents. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how good that is for business though, because those well, businesses tenants, struggled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For tenants, I don't I don't think they like that. <laughs> no, not necessarily, unless yeah, they're uh you know, then I think yeah, unless they're a growing growing tenant and it's just and as long as like the rental increase maybe isn't going isn't escalating too fast, that's a cost you can bear. But again, like some of those other trends, it's like maybe you're doing a little bit less square footage per person. So mm-hmm. maybe you're getting more bang for your buck out of the square footage. That can also then offset those costs. Like I know that's what, you know, that's what my company did when we moved from our previous office to this office, you know, going to the open office plans, get, getting rid of a lot of the storage space. So there's just a lot, uh, a lot fewer square foot per person, a lot more mm-hmm. people per floor, you know. Gotcha. You know, that, that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's so maybe the rents so maybe the on a square foot basis the rent may be going up but if you're taking taking less space maybe your your overall real estate costs uh, are not going up as much yeah what else do we need to know from this story um, so it's one of the, in terms of just their overall uh, office market outlook you know new office completions the the number of new offices that office buildings that opened. Uh, in the second quarter, rose to 14.7 million square feet since the largest uh, amount of new space to hit the market in one quarter since 2009. So that's over over a decade ago. Um, and there's another 111 million square feet that's now under construction. So there, so there's a lot of stuff in the pipeline uh, and a lot of stuff that's coming online, which I then again. You know, given that there's new space, you know, a pretty robust amount of construction, the fact that the vacancy rate went down just shows you how strong demand was. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that this is kind of why then I had the whole preface before the story, which is okay, you know, if some of these headwinds that are signaling, you know, maybe a recession coming, you know, then this could all kind of you know, that's the that's always the recipe when when the when the when the the market the real estate market you know turns mm-hmm. on a dime all of a sudden where you know we've got you got a lot of demand you know you got a healthy business climate you got a lot of you, you got businesses that 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 are opening or expanding uh, driving construction driving demand suddenly you put a break on that you know maybe that then suddenly the demand may go away faster than the than the supply can adjust because you know if these projects are under construction right now or slated to come online in six months or twelve months, suddenly we have you know headwinds. Then you then you get into that classic scenarios that we've seen in the past, where suddenly you've got you know empty office buildings opening, uh, you know existing office buildings losing losing tenants, and then you've got brand new buildings opening, and suddenly the vacancy rate skyrockets, and you know that's that's the recipe for a down cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So, I mean, you know, that's, I think of the risk, you know, but for now the, you know, the activity that is occurring and, and continue, you know, you know, that, but none of that's occurring yet. So I think, you know, for now, you know, we're in a good place. These vacancy rates are low. Businesses are, 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 are doing all right and uh, driving that demand. For now, it's good news. And if it turns, we'll have that update too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. What's the next story? So switching gears considerably, um, another interesting piece this week was um, based on a report from Apartment Guide, uh, which found that 54% of young people who are about to graduate from college plan to move back home to live with their parents. So the ramifications of that are that typically, you know, that's a pretty high, I think, I think historically that's, that's a pretty high level. And, and according to the managing director of apartment guide, uh, Brian Carberry, who we interviewed for the story, the way he put it was as recently as a few years ago, it was almost embarrassing to move back home with your parents. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that as an increasingly viable option for college graduates. So yeah. This may have been, you know, I, I certainly, I mean, I know when I graduated from college, it was not a goal to go yeah, yeah. back home. Um, it was, you know, get get on your feet, get, you know, maybe get a roommate or whatever, but at least just try to, you know, get, get going. Mm-hmm. Um, now it seems like it's increasingly acceptable not to do that. So that's the, so the, I think that's ultimately the, that's the importance of this trend is for the apartment market where, you know, historically new college graduates are, um, going and becoming new apartment renters. So that's that's part part of what fuels demand in the apartment sector. It's like going, you know, the, you think about the typical cycle, you graduate college, you try to get, you know, get your first job, you get your first apartment, either a small place by yourself or a roommate situation. And then, you know, down the line you become a home buyer. I mean, that's at least the American trajectory. This is now, I think ultimately what the story is pointing out is that this is creating a a lag in that process where you know, an increasing amount of, of of people are graduating college, going back home, staying there for a while, trying to get on their feet, even if they have a job, uh, but at least living at home and kind of delaying this whole process of becoming, you know, becoming renters, forming households, and that whole cycle just gets uh, kicked kicked down kicked down the the road a little bit. Yeah, I think it's it's a wise decision if the the housing market is at a point where it's too expensive, which I think we've kind of talked about that. Even, mm-hmm. I mean, even renting. I'm curious if this is actually hurting the apartments, you know, in, in, in realistically, is it hurting them by people teaming up, becoming roommates instead of having their own place each? Is that really affecting them? All these, you know, the, the graduates moving back home as a parent, I would welcome my children to do that with a plan, right? I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. you you do have parents that are just going to say, Oh, come back and I'll, I'll take care of you. Oh, that's terrible. Okay. (laughs) No, they're adults. (laughs) Don't take care of them. Set up, rules, boundaries, expectations, so they can be success, successful, be there a couple of years, and then maybe save up some money, like you were saying, and setting up a household differently. But is this truly, do you think, is this truly affecting the apartments at this point? I don't, I don't see apartment prices dropping because of lack of tenants. No, I think, it, I think maybe what it speaks to is just the question of affordability in the multifamily sector and the apartment sector. I mean, yeah, apartments are, are the apartment sector is healthy. Multifamily is always healthy. There's always a lot of demand, but the the, the rent to income ratio can get pretty high in some in some places where it just mm-hmm. literally might not be possible, even if someone wanted to, to to rent a place by themselves. 
Yeah. So, you know, and then again, I, I think, you know, the point that you're making then makes sense, which is, all right, what's going to be uh, the the decision that makes the most sense for the an individual trying to get going? Like, you know, do you want to pay 50% of your income in rent and struggle for a while? Or do you save some money at home, um, live there for a while, have a plan to, you know, maybe grow, try to get some better income and then be able to afford something in a, in a more, in a more healthy, um, more healthy kind of ratio or, or choose the option of, of doing the roommate situation. Um, so there was like another report that we looked at that I think kind of pointed out a, a, a few of these trends. It was from real page. So they found that, Basically, twenty six percent of of all renters are people in their twenties or early thirties who live by themselves. So that's about a quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and the they could they kind of called these people st- starting out singles. They have a medium household income of about thirty six thousand dollars, and most of them s- will rent units that average about seven hundred and eighty five square feet. So that's one chunk of 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 the of the market. And for them, the median rent-to-income ratio is probably about 30%. Uh, another fifth of these households are what RealPage calls roommates by necessity. Mm-hmm. Uh, their median age is 28 with a median household income of $78,000 per year. And as Greg Willett, who is the chief economist with RealPage, told us, uh, basically takes two folks from the starting out singles group and, com- and combine them into a two-person household. So mm-hmm. so. And that, and then what you get is what then the the roommates by necessity household. So um, rather than maybe taking a smaller place and having that ratio of twenty nine percent rent to income, by teaming up, um, each person's rent to income ratio goes down to twenty percent. Oh, so okay. that's I a think big that's deal. Those, it's a better seems yeah. like a better for for an individual to do that. Yeah, I think so too. Obviously, nine percent difference. That's that can make a big difference in somebody's lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. I could, yeah, I think it's a yeah, pretty, pretty big chunk of change for uh, for the course of the year. David, I'm I like to think long term. I'm a, I'm a I'm a kind of a behaviorist by nature to kind of see what happens because you know A happens, then B happens because A did, or A and B happen, then C is the result. So I'm really curious about this future of jobs. Period. Right? People going into mm-hmm. college now looking at these kind of statistics, whether they see them or they just know of friends or their friend's older brother and sister who are moving back with mom and dad because they've graduated and thinking, I really don't want to do that. So I want to choose a different career because I want to make more money so I don't have to do that. Right. So that's, that's one of my concerns is less teachers, less uh, social workers, less policemen, firemen, uh, while they make a decent wage, it certainly isn't necessarily a strong enough wage to be able to maintain your own household or mm-hmm. not have to move back in with mom and dad or whatever. I hate to lose good people in those types of careers based on this kind of information. You know what I mean? So I'm just, I'm, I know we don't have a study on that, but maybe in a few years you and I'll be talking about that. <laughs> the, yeah, I, I think that does touch on a real concern that's in the, the in the industry and just... Um, that if average rents are so high or that, you know, the average medium income to rent ratio gets too high, then, um, 
we have an affordable housing crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there are some people that are pushing either they call it affordable housing or workforce housing because I think sometimes affordable housing gets you know for for whatever reason gets a negative connotation associated with it. So I think that there are people that are trying to I think um, developers that are trying to cater to like create supply that would be more affordable so that because the other the situation that you could have is that like you know to have to to have the kind of jobs you're talking about but then you can't actually afford to live in exactly. the place where you want to do that yeah exactly <laughs> right? that's so, a huge problem <laughs> so it's either you have you know have those kind of jobs and you have to then like you know live too far away so it's like the whole idea of like you know like creating the an affordable housing stock close to where the demand for those kind of jobs would be to make that kind of those kind of choices career choices um achievable yeah exactly so i think those are question you know i think those are definitely issues again it's like we've gotten outside the scope of this story but i think it does obviously i think it does connect to it because of of what we're of what the of what the the dynamic that they're getting at um but i think you know i think we we, we do have some we we will have you know we have written about like that question before and i'm sure we will again so i think in a in a future podcast we can kind of center a discussion around it yeah that'd be great all right what's our next story we're covering so switching to another business entirely um we're going back to retail which we talked a, a lot about last week mm-hmm. um this week we had a chance to interview the ceo of uh, preet uh who is one of the major regional mall reits in the country um and it was a good chance to kind of check in on some, you know, hear from from a top executive on some of the the, the trends and, and challenges in the retail space, and find out how they've been dealing with them over the past, um, you know, couple months and years. Um, so they're primarily based. In, Pre stands for uh, Pennsylvania REIT. They're based in Philadelphia, so a lot of their properties are in the Mid Atlantic. Historically, they had. Um, Kind of a collection of, I mean, like going back, you know, over 10, 20 years, they've had a collection of some like a, you know, top class A malls and some class, you know, some a little bit lower, you know, A minus B plus class B malls. In recent years, they've got, you know, been able to sell some, I think, some of their weaker properties and kind of really focus on on their highest quality assets. So it was kind of a good, and they've done some redevelopment work, you know, because some of their properties, you know, been around for decades. So it was, I think, you know, so it was just a good chance to to talk to, to get a sense of, you know, what they're seeing in the mall space and in what particular, and what specifically, how they've specifically dealt with some of the challenges. So um, what, what he told us, you know, we asked him about, you know, how they've been dealing with the, the store closures and bankruptcies that have been hitting, hitting the sector. And like I said, they, they sold off um, 40% of their portfolio between 2012 and 2018. Mm. Um, they also have been tried to be pretty aggressive in taking back uh, for, for their malls where they maybe had a Sears or another weaker department store. In some cases, they, they moved to take that lease back from the department store even before they made a decision to close Mm. so that way they can could focus on re-merchandising their centers. One of the more interesting stats about their, about their portfolio that he mentioned was that, you know, up from a few years ago about, you know, if you looked at one of their malls, it was probably about 70% apparel retailers and including, I think the, 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 the percentage of department store business that would be um, on apparel. 
Now um, it's down. Apparel is down to forty percent of its portfolio, and instead they've they've grown um, a big chunk of health and fitness uh, tenants. Now ten percent of their portfolio uh, includes those kind of tenants, and twenty five percent is now devoted to dining and entertainment. So they've kind of gotten a, a much more oh. balanced portfolio, which is not not so contingent on just selling apparel. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty big drop. Thirty percent. Yeah, I was I was actually surprised that it's been that it was that much of a transformation, and um, I think you know that seems like they it's been a pretty big focus and 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 pretty successful if they've been able to take some of those um, maybe bigger department take some of the bigger department store spaces and carve them up or get like a big alternative tenant and then also do a fair amount of um, inline releasing. Yeah, I mean we could see that forty percent go up if they let those stores come in that are renting clothes, right? Right. I mean, okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we don't need to go back to that story every time, but that still bothers me, David. Yeah. Uh, rental, clothes, clothes, rental, clothes, yeah. clothing, <laughs> yoga pant rental. I just don't. Anyway. Yeah. So wow. I mean, still that, that is a good size drop. But so the entertainment that that's mm-hmm. interesting to me. Did they differentiate between what type of entertainment? I think that includes like you know uh, theaters. You know, for example, oh, okay. as well as like Dave and Buster's. You know, the, or, or other similar the, other similar concepts of. Dining, which has maybe a, um, you know, that kind of like arcade component to it. Got it. Got it. So with that, I think they also mentioned that their portfolio is now 94% occupied, which is um, a pretty nice level. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And and their comparable comparable store sales figures. So um, went from $340 a square foot. In 2012, up to $530 a square foot um, now. So mm. that's also like a $190 per square foot growth over the past seven years. So that's a pretty nice pace of yeah, growth. Yeah, that's, that's sizable. Yeah, and that's and that's just that's same store sales. So that's our comparable store sales. So that's like that's that's the same tenants or the same space is generating more like a mm. it's generating more sales not not necessarily that they've um you know just added a bunch of other things gotcha one other you know i think we've also had the the trend that we've talked about around the increasing blurring the lines between online and in-person sales or like the idea that you may buy something online and uh pick it up in a store or you know um, or 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 buy or have something delivered, and maybe exchange it at a store. So, like the the, the transactions may be occurring both online and in the real world at the same time. So, this has created um, an issue around how leases might be structured, and and it was interesting to hear how, his thoughts on that because uh, historically, the way that you know retail leases might be structured is. Um, that there's this thing called percentage rent, uh, where um, if the retailer in question, you know, hits a certain certain volume of like they pay a flat rent mm-hmm. um, that's agreed to, and maybe and some fees that are agreed to, but then there's like this this percentage rent component, which is once a tenant exceeds a certain threshold of sales, then they start paying a percentage of the, the additional sales as additional rent to the to the uh, to the landlord. And, um, and so this creates both an incentive for the landlord to help drive, you know, help make that ten- tenant more successful. Mm-hmm. 
by doing what they can, by having, you know, other good, you know, a strong center that's driving people, helping boost the retailer sales, and they they help get a, you know, they get a cut of that. So it's supposed to be like, you know, a, a model of, of um, a mutually beneficial model. Um, but now if the sale took place, if somebody made the order on the phone and picked it up in the mall, how do you count that sale? <laughs> I yeah, that's, exactly. So that's, so, so that's the question that's created is like, so how do we actually ca- like now we don't even know how to calculate the, the amount of sale, like necessarily how, how to calculate the volume of sales that are taking place at the retailer because of the way the lines are blurred. Mm. So I think what, what he said is that maybe what, what they're going to look at is having less of the rent based on this percentage rent idea and instead move to a more guaranteed or a minimum rent model, just to kind of like flatline the rents, maybe, you know, maybe raise the rents if the, if, if, if the, if the store is productive, but not be so contingent on this, on this thing that's going to be much harder to figure out. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of research. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, and, and, you know, who knows how much more that's, that kind of stuff is going to continue to evolve. All right. Anything else we need from this story? I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to go too much deeper into it. I think he had a lot of uh, interesting stuff to say about, you know, some individual retailers and about just overall trends. So I think those were some of my, my takeaways, but I think people should actually, if they, you know, sh- should go and read the full interview on the site if they can. Gotcha. So then, like, you know, I wanted to talk about the last piece, uh, one more piece um, in, in a little bit of detail for the week and then, and then um, move on. Um, we did a, it's been a while since we, we, we tend to, from time to time, we do some galleries based on some data we get from, from, um, different research reports or, um, people in the industry. So we had one this week that was based on information from move.org with the cities with the lowest and highest living costs. So I thought that was interesting. So it's, so the gallery includes, the um, five most expensive and the 10 most affordable um, cities for cost of living. So some of the, um, not surprisingly, the most expensive are dominated by, you know, major metros Mm -hmm. in California and, you know, in New York, it was New York city, San Fran, San Jose, Oakland, and then Boston and number five. Uh, For example, the average rents for a one bedroom apartment, uh, in all these cities, you know, Boston's tw- is over twenty four hundred dollars a square Holy foot. Holy cow! I mean, not, not sorry, not per square foot per yeah. month. Twenty four hundred yeah. per month. Twenty four hundred square foot, dude. Yeah, somebody's uh, making money on the side somehow. <laughs> yes, yeah, that would be yeah, very very uh, um, extreme. Yeah. twenty four hundred in Boston uh, still 20, per month is extreme. Holy cow! Yeah, per, yeah, yeah, for one bedroom. Yeah. 2,500, 2, over twenty five hundred in San Jose. Uh, over thirty one hundred in New York, and over and almost thirty four hundred dollars a month in San Francisco. And then the the report also included average cost of things like utilities, monthly food costs, gas, and, and internet to come with come um, at a, like an a, an overall figure of like what is like the you know the living costs here. So at San Francisco, when you add when you're all in on just those five things: rent, utilities, food, gas. Internet, you're over forty two hundred dollars a month. No wonder people are moving back with their parents. <laughs> exactly. So Come on, you know, bring, bring it all back home. <laughs> that's, that's that's just the just the rent for the one bedroom is double the mortgage on my house, which is twenty four hundred square feet. There you go. I know. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. That's insane. Um, okay. But you know, on the then on go on the complete flip side, the cities on the low end, dominated by pretty much by like predominantly southeast and southwest. So um, going from ten to one, um, from in terms of the 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 lowest living costs. We had Mesa, Arizona, Albuquerque, Lexington, Kentucky, Memphis, Tennessee, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Louisville, Kentucky, Wichita, Kansas, Toledo, Ohio, Lincoln, Nebraska. And then the most affordable uh, market in the country is actually El Paso. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Rent there for a single bedroom is uh, average is $658 a month. And then when you added in all the utilities, food, gas, internet, you're at uh, just under $1,200 a month. Mm, wow. So that's about not quite one quarter, somewhere between a quarter and a third of the cost of a month in, in San Francisco. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a big difference. Yeah. So anyway, we have the gallery, um, and we also have a link to that full report, which actually includes the cost for 75, for 75 cities and all. So it's... Even looking at the full report, you kind of could see where where a whole bunch of other cities fit in between in between those tops and the bottoms. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's those are the main some of the main pieces for the week. I also did we had a, a did a busy week, so there's a couple other headlines that I think if if people want to go to the site and check out, you know, if they want to go to nreionline.com, we also um, had headlines this week about. What co-working operators are doing in and how they're expanding in the southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a piece about how foreign commercial real estate investors are hedging their costs and how that's um, benefiting the way that they're uh, how that's a benefit to how they're um, investing in the U.S. right now. And then, lastly, a piece on the hotel sector and just um, what may be happening with rental with rents there. Yeah, interesting. All right, people can go check that out. David, thank you so much for all your time this week. Thank you. And uh, thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Absolutely. And thank you for listening to the NREI Weekender with your host, David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at the NREI Weekender, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back next week for all the news that matters to you. And we'll see you soon. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of NERI Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.